0: The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. We have come with open hearts, oh, let the ancient word... So Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 is where we'll read, I'll we're going to be picking back up, long about verse 6. Philippians 3 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul, writing my inspiration, said, Finally, my brethren... Rejoice in the Lord, to write the same things to you is indeed not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of the concision, for we are of the circumcision which worship God in spirit in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he have whereof that he might trust in the flesh, I more... And then he starts listing some qualities that he has and some possessions he at least has had in the past. He said, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, and touching righteousness, which is in the law blameless. Verse 7, But what things I, were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, And of course we've began to subdivide this just a little bit. I don't know that I've given you what in my mind at least is the outline of this chapter. I'll share that with you now. I've given you pieces of it at least. Verses 1 through 4. The way I have it outlined tonight at least is Paul's caution. Because he wanted to warn the brethren there as we mentioned several different times over the course of the past two weeks. That even though you may have individuals who are entering in coming in and out of the church. Even those who are Christians. Although you may have people who are trying to apply extra things to you, uh, then when you find in the law or then you find in the church, you need to be aware of that. Of course, we talked about how these most likely would have been those who were categorized, at least, as Judaizers. And, of course, there were many things they often applied. The one example he does use here concerning circumcision, of course, he calls it King James speak at least beware of the concision, verse 2. But he wants him to know that no matter what anyone would try to apply to you, all of your confidence should be in Christ. And of course, we might imply that in Christ alone. But if someone were to claim any confidence in the flesh, he gives this listing of things that he could claim. And so verses 1 through 4, I see it as Paul's claim. Verses 5 through 7, I'm sorry, 1 through 4, Paul's caution. Verses 5 through 7, Paul's claim And then we may not ever get to it tonight, but Paul's consideration, verses 8 and 9, and then Paul's conclusion, verses 10 through 16. However, you'll notice 16 is not the end of the chapter because Paul comes back with what I've called Paul's consummation, and that just means when it's all summed up, you'll find that in verses 17 through 21. So 21 verses in the chapter... Hopefully that outline, if I got it lined up correctly, uh, accommodate all of those 21 verses. But Paul started, and we're back up in verse 5 now, when he said he was circumcised the eighth day out of the stock of Israel. That was the first characteristic or challenge, if you will. I think I may have called it several times. Paul's one up because he's telling them if you want to boast, if you want to brag, if you want to claim that your heritage, that your lineage somehow connects you to greatness then i'm going to show you how mine would do more if i chose to do that and of course that's one of those things that there were probably uh people among the church even there that could say oh yeah i'm, I'm of the same group you know paul i'm i'm also was circumcised the eighth day and i also came out of the stock of israel so go to the next level with that he said of the tribe of benjamin now what was the significance that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago about being from the tribe of benjamin If nothing more, it would have put him in the most direct line of the uh, heritage of Christ and the family of Christ. Then he says of the Hebrews or an Hebrew of the Hebrews. That is, if you want to classify the Hebrews as a great nation, I'm above that. And then the last one here that we touched on last week as touching, a, as touching the law a Pharisee. Now, what were the Pharisees most in tune with, the Old Testament or the New Testament law? Old Testament, that's where most of their focus went. As a matter of fact, and I may have mentioned this, they had come up, there were several volumes, several different sets of books, but they had come up at least with one of them that oftentimes is referred to as the Talmud, or Talmud, and it contained about 63 volumes and over 2,700 pages that primarily, not exclusively, but primarily explained nothing but the Ten Commandments. Now, of course, that was more a review of the whole of the law, we find the whole law listed out in the books of Numbers, I'm sorry, Exodus, I'm sorry, uh, Deuteronomy, and such as that, and Numbers. But in, ex- in exclusiveness, they were mainly pointing out just the Ten Commandments. They could take that and run with it for, as we might say, a country mile, and they had done that. And Paul says, if you want to consider me as someone who is special, then you could even call me a Pharisee. Now, was Paul a Pharisee? It seems, seems that he had been. Yes, it, it does seem that he has been. And he of the law was one of those. So that would imply, if nothing else, it implied that Paul was very, very educated in the law. Of course, he understood the New Testament church to be a sect, you can assume. And he understood the New Testament church to be something that was going in the backwards opposite direction of the old law, the old law continue to point them to God the Father. That's the one they focused on. That's the one they uh, gave the most credit to. But, of course, the prophets tended to lead them to and was supposed to lead them to understanding the Christ of the Messiah. And he says, I was touching as a Pharisee. Then verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Now, we may have mentioned what it means to be zealous or to have zeal. What does that mean? Enthusiasm, energy, effort. And he said, I was so zealous for the cause that I stood for, I even persecuted the church. Now, we may have mentioned this or not. When we just brought out last week, when Paul met with Jesus on the road to Damascus, who did Paul think he was persecuting? Well, that's who he learned he was persecuting. He thought he was persecuting the church. And concerning zeal, he states here, I persecuted the church. But who ultimately was at the end of that row? Just said it. Christ. He he was sect. Just a sect. Just, just a group of individuals who you might say thought differently than he did or learned, learned differently than he did or such. And he was determined the whole time to stick with what he knew to stick with what he had learned, to stick with what he was uh, accustomed to and that sort of thing. And he had done that. As a matter of fact, as you see the record bear itself out uh, from Acts chapter 9, where we find out that, yes, he met with Christ on the road to Damascus. When we see the end result of that, as he recollected it to different kings and magistrates and such, in Acts chapter 22 and 26, he continued to record that. And every time he comes back to that same account, He doesn't tell it any differently, really. He just adds a few details or takes away a few. But the end of the discussion is always, I was doing what I knew to do. And I was not doing that. It wasn't any ill conscience in it. I didn't mean anything by it. I was just doing what I believed God would have me to do. And so when his mind was changed, obviously, by Christ, and obviously by his conversion to Christianity in the church, he, he started doing things differently, so he started seeing things differently. So the first part of verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, and then the next phrase here, touching the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. What does the word righteousness mean? You can take the root word of it and explain it. Right doing or doing right. And Paul said, when it concerned what one would assume is right to do, I did that in my mind with perfection. Touching righteousness, which is in the law, I was blameless. And uh, I may have shared with you that I've got an error drawn there from verse 6, the last part of it, as well as verse 7, back up into chapter 2 and verse 16, when Paul was saying, they're holding forth the word of life. That I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. And that's where verse 7 ties in. He said, but in contrast, what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Now the term that he uses there for gain is, is a mathematical, an accounting type term. And it means if you took everything, and of course there was more to it than what he listed. But if you even took everything that was listed... Everything that I could have boasted about, bragged about, you know, stood behind my pride in and and lifted myself up in, including being circumcised the eighth day out of the tribe of Benjamin, of the stock of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews, including being a Pharisee, including being zealous, including being righteous under the law and blameless. He said all of that. I counted that, even though they seemed to be gained, counted those things. I counted a loss. For Christ, and so the word "gain" means an advantage. If he had had any advantage in life, he took that advantage and cast it out. Now, somebody read ahead or knew ahead—not necessarily read ahead last week—but what is Paul about to say about that? In addition to counting it but loss, that's just one way of saying it. What's he going to consider that in a moment? He's going to say that's but dung. This is nothing but rubbish. This is garbage. And it's not worth boasting about. Now, in light of the context there, obviously Paul trusted that. Obviously he believed it. Obviously Paul knew that would be the case in his life. But who is he speaking to by now? Anybody who thinks like he used to think, basically. Anybody who still believes that they've got anything they can boast about because of their heritage or because of their rights or because of their relationships, anything that falls on the human side of things outside of Christ, those things are worthless. That's where the word vain comes in from chapter 2 and verse 16. He did not want to run in vain. He did not want to labor in vain. And in this sense, he says, I do not want to continue to count those things. Why, Paul? Because that would be in vain. Now, I may have told you way back as we were beginning this study, if you were to go through the whole book, and start counting that little one-letter word, the word I, you would find that about 65 to 67 times, something of that nature. And this is one of those times when Paul starts looking at things very introspectively and starts to talk about his view, his self, and the way that he now understands things to be. Now, how did Paul come to that understanding? Well, obviously he came to it through Revelation eventually. He came to that because he understood what the church was and he understood who Christ was. But he comes down to being able to count those things as lost. Now, not a parallel passage in the sense of what it applies to, but when the book of James opens up and James starts out with a whole uh, discussion that he gives about, um, about troubles and trials and hard times, what does James say? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into what? Diverse, that means various many temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Of course, he goes on and on. Uh, James writes about the advantages of that, how that when one is tested, when one is tried, when one has you know difficult days, whatever you could add that up or equate that to just to illustrate it, all those things can be counted as joy. To me, that is much of a head snapper, James chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, as you find right here, to the average person reading this. Because even though he's writing, remember who he's writing to directly, he's writing directly to what he calls verse 1, chapter 1. He says, to the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with bishops and deacons. What does that imply? He's writing to the the church to the whole church, to everybody in it. He's not writing to Judaizers. He's not writing to false teachers. He's not writing to people who would stand outside of the church and oppose it. Albeit he brings them up, obviously, in the discussion here of chapter 3. That's the primary focus of it in the beginning, verse 2 of chapter 3. Beware of those dogs. He's not writing to them. But in that sense, he brings out to them this challenge. And a challenge to the church as well, would you or could you or do you count your past as loss? You see, far and away from first century times, far and away from someone who was alive in the process and during the transition that so many of these people went through from being Jews, from being Hebrews, moving into the church, having to make that transformation, having to make that, that change about, that 180 in their lives, to understand God in one way of the Old Testament and now to see Christ as being a part of the whole Old Testament and bring him into the new and to serve him not under some, some Old Testament law, not to serve him under the law of Moses, but to make the transition to what we refer to now as the law of Christ. That was, a, that was a, 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 probably what well, had to be. A very difficult period for them to come through. A time when many of these people had to be reminded or had to be taught for the very first time. You know, things are different. Things do go differently. You worship Christ in a different manner from what you physically knew to worship God in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was all about what? About actions. It was all about doing physical things, bringing physical sacrifices, offering up physical possessions. The New Testament's more about what? The spiritual. The same sacrifices really apply. The same giving up of something really applies. However, those things are now in a spiritual sense. You know, when when we take the opportunity as a command to do so, but in the opportunity given the command on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week to give of our means, that is the most physical thing it seems that we do as far as what we give, what we offer. But how much more do we give? Should be everything. It doesn't apply as much to the bank account as it would have. Now, under the old law, someone could have gotten to the end of the year and said, well, okay, and I, 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 hadn't, you know, I hadn't gone through all these feasts and these offerings, so I'm making up a number here that you can research, and you can probably come to a real conclusion. But somebody could say at the end of the year, well, I offered you know, uh, four lambs and three doves, and they could all add that up, and maybe they might turn it into their tax man at the end of the year and say, look here at all the things. No, not, not in the way that we live. Not in the way that we serve. The sacrifices are very spiritual in nature. And so when Paul says to them, these things I counted up, these things I could have kept record of, I count for loss. He says, I realize that. I see that. Now, the word loss here implies as well, and this is like I've tried to understand myself. If you take the old Webster's Dictionary, I don't know how many of us pull a dictionary off the shelf anymore. Probably... Almost none. But if you take the old Webster's Dictionary and you open it up and you thumb through it, you'll always find those primary definitions. You know, the one, they may have an A or they may have a number one beside them. Then you'll have the secondaries and and on down the row. And the farther, supposedly, the farther down you read on that page of Webster's Dictionary or any other, the farther away from you get from the main meaning, but there's still some applied meaning. There's still some ways in which words are used in various and different ways. The word he uses here implies and is the main, the main meaning there. Literally, he suffered these things for loss. He felt, to an extent, he felt some pain in doing this. But why did he do it? The verse tells us, counted them for loss for Christ. The secondary definition is, is it did some damage. Now, did it hurt the apostle Paul to give these things up? Probably to an extent physically it could. Particularly when Paul was viewed by his, by his own countrymen, by his own people. What was Paul sometimes referred to as? We use a, a, an English word to apply it, but they say he was a traitor. Uh, he was a turncoat. They said that he had turned his back on them. He had somehow left them behind. That was the application of it, at least. Here Paul says, yeah. The whole reason for what he's saying now is because the Judaizers had been going out, I'm sure, behind his back and saying, look, Paul apostles possibly the Gentiles, he doesn't care about Mm it. And we know for a fact that uh, so many of the Jews weren't letting letting go of that authority. What was still existent after the death of Christ, one thing, well, you won't guess this out of a million things. One thing that was still existent after the death of Christ that absolutely should not have been was the priest, the high priest particularly. And they continued on those traditions. They continued to keep that hierarchy for quite a while to hold on to those things as a part of their tradition, a part of what they had known. And Paul says, look, I, I count all that for loss. I took the hit. Now, that's not, that's not Webster's or, or Muntz's Greek dictionary. That's mine. I took the hit. I was willing to give that up, and I took the hit for it. Now, verse 8, he said, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now that's where I mentioned he gives this list of things specifically that he was willing and had given up. But he adds to that in the summation of it here in verse 8, I gave all things up. That implies there that if anything else comes up that has a potential of standing between me and Christ, I'll throw that out too anything that might pass our way, he says, I'll continue to throw that up too. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss, same word as above actually, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. He makes a separation here. These men, some of them, many of them, Believe they had all knowledge and that whatever it is they had to say, no matter what it was, if they stood in an assembly, such as the church, such as the Old Testament synagogues, if they stood in an assembly of people, that they had the right, and they didn't, but they believed seemingly that they had the right to, yes, to read Scripture, to even some of them to speak about Jesus, to tell about the cross. But then they also thought they had the right to turn to someone who was a Gentile and say, Okay, I know what we just preached. I know what we were just taught. But uh, come over here. You're going to have to be circumcised as well. You've got to do this too. Because some of those people, some of those individuals believed that they had that type of authority. They tried to hold on to such type of authority. And he said, Look, I don't care what knowledge someone thinks they have. I gave everything up and will continue to do so so that I may access the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Now it's not just his words, it implies some of his words, but the implication is that I want to access Jesus. I want to be able to get to him and therefore anything that is between me and him has to be thrown out. Now You can think through some physical things in life that we have in, you know, in physical ways given up or could have to give up to be right with God. And he makes a mention of the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then he implies something here. And I've got this word, and I'll tell you before I circle it and box it and highlight it, the next word, my Lord. Paul was willing By this point in his life, and this had been going on by this time, it had been going on in Paul's life for 25, 30 years or so. Didn't do the math, but roughly. Paul was willing to say at this point, without a question, without argument, Jesus Christ is my Lord. Now how much of a contrast is that to what was said? I keep referring back to Acts chapter 9. What was Paul's question when Jesus came to him on the road to Damascus? I assume he's knocked to the ground on his face. I don't know, blinded, what have you. What did he say to Jesus? What's the first statement he made? He had a question. Who art thou, Lord? So he gives him some credit as being a master. And I've jokingly said before, of course he's his master in the moment. He's he's put him on the ground. The power of, of just his essence had, had put Paul on the ground it blinded him. But not yet understanding fully who he was. But by this point, Paul is no longer and hasn't for a long time questioning whose Lord this is. The most well-known psalm of all the psalms that we hear commonly that most people can quote to an extent. How does it start? This one right here, 2-3. How does 23 start? David writes by inspiration, the Lord is, what's the next word? My shepherd. So David had come to a conclusion. Of course, this is under the old law or under you know, a whole different system. It's not under Christ, but he had come to a conclusion that the God of heaven was his Lord. He was his shepherd. He was his master. And of course the 23rd Psalm, you know, it's beautiful to read at a, at a wedding or a funeral and all these occasions. The essence of it is, as he goes on and on, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. What makes him my shepherd? Because he provides for me everything. I don't have anything that lacks. I don't have anything where I come up short. I don't have anything where if I follow after the God of heaven that I step to the side and say, wait a minute now, Uh, I appreciate all you've done, God, but I still need this from this life. I still need that from this world. David's convinced by the 23rd Psalm that's not the case. Paul's in a similar, albeit a different time frame, a different uh, era. Paul's in a similar condition. And he says, "Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of Christ, or excellency of Christ Jesus, my Lord. For when whom I have suffered the loss for all things, and do count them but dung, we mentioned that that I may win Christ, that I may win Christ." I don't know how this goes because I, I don't watch many. Um, I don't watch many races, and by that I mean you know these these uh, track and field events. I don't know much about it, but I do know this: most, if not all, those people who are successful at track and field, what's one thing they seem to have in common about the way they dress? They dress as light as they can. And I don't know how that works out mathematically. I don't know the, you know the ounces or the grams and how that affects each step and how that affects the times and such as that. But I do know that there have been times when athletic events are referenced in Scripture and described, the Hebrews account is one of them, uh, and described as having put off something, having put away something. The sin that does so easily beset us of course that sin seemingly from chapter 11 of Hebrews simply boils down to the sin of unbelief you know you name sin upon sin upon sin upon sin but when you run them through that funnel and drop them out in the bowl it comes down to unbelief it comes down to God said it I don't believe it so I do it my way it's what sin boils down to but that is you take off extra things you take off the weight and so Paul uses that type of illustration to say, look, yes, I, because Jesus Christ is my Lord, I've suffered loss. I've suffered all things because I wanted to win Christ. He wanted Christ to be his prize at the end. Again, backing up across page, chapter 2 and verse 16, he didn't want to run in vain. He didn't want to labor in vain. He wanted to stand in victory in this. And the only way he saw possible was to count these things but lost or to count them but done. Verse 9, he says, and to be found, next word I've got circled, underlined, boxed and highlighted, in him, not having mine own righteousness. Now again, the opposition is if someone were to read this among the Judaizers and really to let this click, and maybe they, maybe they weren't ready for that. Maybe they weren't ready to be convinced. But if they were to really let this click, they were trying to measure their actions, their duties, their abilities, their works, and count that for righteousness. And to say, well, God, you owe me salvation because I've done this and this and this and this, and, and that box that everybody else has missed, I've got checked. And Paul says, these things right here, every one of these things, they're but dung to me because I, don't, I, I know I don't have my own righteousness. He adds to that, that phrase, verse 9, which is of the law. The law gave them the, um, the pattern that they went by to try to get that. Now, they had expanded it. Again, they had gone far beyond the law of God. But that gave them the pattern of what they built on. He said, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness... Which is of God by faith. So Paul said, I had to move on from my former way of thinking. I had to move on from the way that I once lived. I had to move on from believing that I had my own righteousness. And I had to give up all of that so I could be, verse 9, the first phrase, found in Him. What else is the result? Verse 10. He said that, and any time you say the word that, you can put in order that. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be made conformable even unto his death. So Paul's caution, verses 1 to 4, brought Paul into making an argument by his claim, verses 5 through 7. And allowed him to come to a conclusion, verses 8 and 9. And that is, I've got to give all that up. I've got to lay aside everything else. Because he wanted, ultimately, to know him, that's Jesus, by the power of his resurrection. Of every event, everything that Jesus participated in and or did, including all the miracles that he did. What is the main, ultimate proof that he was a son of God? That he was God. His resurrection that I may know him by the power of his resurrection. I don't do much flipping or flopping, but turn back with me to the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. and You know already, you'll be familiar with where we're going and why we're going there. But go to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. The whole chapter, primarily given over to the proof of the resurrection and the results of the resurrection. Now, depending on how you count this out, and you may count it out differently no argument there. It's a very long chapter, by the way, as far as chapters go, 58 verses. But Paul presents the case here that, one, the resurrection did exist, and it did take place, and it was a real-life event. And then he makes the suggestion, hypothetically, that if the resurrection did not exist, or else it was not real, he lists, and depending on how you number, it, I come up with seven, you may come up with six or eight or I don't know how many, but he lists at least seven spiritual truths that are true because of the resurrection therefore on the other side of the coin seven spiritual truths that if not true the resurrection can't be and he starts that discussion 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 1 moreover brethren i declare unto you by the gospel which i preached unto you which also you have received and wherein you stand verse 2 1 Corinthians 15 which all which by which also ye are saved if you keep in memory that which I preach unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all which I also received how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So Paul sets a foundational truth down here in 1 Corinthians 15 that... Christ died for our sins, and he did that according to the Scriptures. He says in verse 4, that he was buried and rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, that's most likely Peter, just plain old Peter as we would refer to him, then of the twelve, and after that was seen above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained unto the present, and some are fallen. Verse 7, After that, he was seen of James and of all the apostles. Now verse 8. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due season. So Paul was familiar with the fact of the resurrection. Not the theory. not Not the suggestion. Not the story. Not... Not uh, just someone's tale, but he was familiar with the fact of the resurrection. Now did Paul see Jesus in the same form, verse 8, as what, for example, uh, Peter, verse 5, as well as the apostles saw him in verse 7? But his form was no less than theirs. When he met with Christ in a resurrected bodily form, again, on to the road to Damascus, he saw with his eyes, albeit blinded, spiritual eyes, the truth of the resurrection. And he knew then with spiritual eyes that the resurrection was true, therefore the resurrection of ourselves can be true as well. Now back in our text, to reread that, he said that I may know him. The idea is there, I may completely know him. I may have more knowledge than I've had. He had some knowledge. He had the, the beginning of knowledge. He had the knowledge that had been given to him there on that road and as he learned from it. And, of course, he's gone years, decades past that such now. But his will was to know him, to be intimate knowledge of him by the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Was Paul expecting the Christian life to be easy? Mm-mm. No, not according to this he wasn't. He was expecting the Christian life, as it had already proven in his life, to be filled with trials. Again, I don't, I don't have the arrow drawn here because it's not only up the page and across the page, it's to the next page. But you could put a marker down in your mind at least back in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 30. He said, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now hear in me. You could put one back to verse 29, verse chapter 1. For unto you it is given on the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Paul was willing. He had given up everything that he listed. He had given up and was willing to give up everything else. And if it even cost Paul his life, he would give that up as well because he wants to know him and the power of his resurrection and have fellowship with his sufferings, and be made conformable even unto his death. So in every one of these things that he's listed, he gives the reasoning behind what he believes, and then he gives the reality or the result of what it will bring. And he understands that. He understands that he has to be conformable into Christ and conformable specifically unto his death. Verse 11, he continues the same mindset. He said, if by any means that I may obtain unto the resurrection of the dead. That's the 1 Corinthians 15 thing. Christ was resurrected, therefore I can be as well. Verse 12, not as though I have already obtained, either have already, were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that which I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. If we were to put other terms in there, I don't know if another translation may put it similar. I've not yet arrived. I've not yet completed in my race. I've not yet finished my goal. What he says in essence is, I've gotten deeds, but I hadn't got to my final destination. He's understood. He's lived as he did under the old law. He's done and tried everything Solomon might have called it under the sun as far as religious things, as far as trying to be good. And the end result is he couldn't do it. The end result is he had not attained and had not yet apprehended. And he was not yet complete. That's the word perfect of verse 12. Then he says in verse 13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, and this is the part of the text we're very familiar with as well. This one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before. I press toward the mark of the high calling or the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We'll come back to some of that on another time. But in gist, or in, in the summation Paul said, I gave it up, and I'll give it up. And he was willing to do that. One of the times, I think I said it a little bit backwards, but I'll go back. Uh, verse 1 through 4, the caution. Verses 5 through 7, the claim. Verses 8 and 9 should, been, should have been the consideration. And then verses 10 through 16 are the conclusion. What what did he conclude out of all this? What did he understand? Well, he's understanding the resurrection. And finally, his consummation, verses 17 through 21, is more for them than him. But he's saying, I want you to make it to this point. Because ultimately, those who do not come as far as Paul had come, their end, verse 19, will be destruction. So we'll come back to that another time. Thank you.